Hello, heroes, and welcome to Backstory. I'm your host, Alex Roberts. This time, our guest is author, journalist, and LARPwright Lizzie Stark. We talked about LARP as community, LARP as biography, LARP as activism, and we say vulva a bunch of times toward the end, so stick around for that. Let's get right to the show. Welcome to the show, and it's so good to have you. Hey, it's so uh, it's so great to be here, and thanks for having me. I'm super excited to uh, listen to all of your podcasts. Oh, hooray, mutual yeah. excitement. I've yeah. been so excited to read your books and play your games. <laughs> <laughs> so you wrote Leaving Mundania, which is pretty much the book on LARP in America. I have to ask, what was the origin of that idea? What made you decide to write a book about LARPs? Well, I have a kind of unsexy origin story, which is that I was, uh, so I did grad school twice. I did a creative writing degree, and then I went and I did a journalism degree. And when I was doing my creative writing degree, I had this very good friend named Sarah Miles. She's still a good friend. And Sarah Miles had a string of roommates that she had found on Craigslist. And she had lived in this apartment with some LARPers you know, some boffer LARPers from the Boston area. And she would tell us about all the stuff that was in their house. And she was kind of excited about it. You know, they had foam shields and uh, foam swords, and they would go into the woods and dress up. And it sounded kind of geeky, but also kind of awesome. Uh-huh. And then she moved uh, and she found her roommates on Craigslist again. And again, they were LARPers just by coincidence. So she had kind of the same experience. Um, at the end of that, uh, at the end of that uh, apartment search as well. Uh, so that's how I learned that LARP existed. And she had written a short story that she read out at one of the readings about imagining what it would be like to be in a LARP. And she'd done all of this research with her roommates. So that's how I learned about LARP. Um, and then uh, we graduated and I went to journalism school. And in the program where I was, there's a uh, there's a book writing class, uh, and it's a it's a it's a well known book writing class. They're, they have the guy who teaches it, Samuel Friedman, who's a, a big mentor of mine. Um, uh, has a very high rate of getting people book deals, and um, you know it's like one in four people who graduate from the class are able to get a book deal afterwards. So I really wanted to get into the class because I had always wanted to write a book. And I was searching around for a topic, and I had been doing some, um, I'd been doing some other journalism on like Renaissance, uh, Renaissance fair types, SCA types, and so on. And so I thought of LARP, um, and so I, I just did, I did a bunch of internet research, and I pitched it, and it didn't seem like there was a lot else uh, out there on LARP, and so that, that is one of the things that made it a good topic. Uh, for a book, right? Uh, you get into trouble if you are trying to write about something that 50,000 people have already written about, because most of them will probably be more famous than you and have a better platform. <laughs> so I sort of accidentally, <laughs> I sort of accidentally stumbled into it. Like I had this friend who knew about LARP and then I really wanted to get into this book class and I pitched something on LARP and then I got kind of sucked in um, the more I uh, went out reporting. Yeah, well, there's um, there's sort of like two paths that we often hear um, to to LARP, which is either you get into tabletop and then you kind of like 
you know, somehow winnow your way over to live action or you're into theater and improv and then somehow that connects you to to role playing. But it sounds like neither of those are your journey at all. I mean, the, the process of the book is kind of what got you into it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had always been into theater in high school and I did a lot of theater, um, you know, in high school and college. So there is definitely that element. And when I was uh, doing my fiction writing degree, I had a, a literary journal with Sarah <laughs> and a, a bunch of other wonderful ladies. And um, we we published a lot of experimental fiction. So I'd sort of been interested in experimental ways of telling narratives. And I think like the idea of artist happenings uh, and so on uh, and, and weird little art experiments also sort of ties into what I found appealing about LARP. Mm-hmm. How did you how did you get into LARP? Uh that's actually kind of a long and really odd story. I got into swing dance and then people who were into swing dance convinced me to go to this like weird yoga ecstatic dance. It was super fun. I'd never do it again. But someone that I met at that thing uh added me on Facebook to invite me to like a crystal bowl sound like shamanic journey. But he was also happened to be running a LARP and uh And so this guy who I had met once at a dance thing, I was like, oh, hey, you run LARPs? Invite me. He said, we just had someone drop out. And uh, yeah. And then he got the book LARPs from the factory (laughs) and started running LARPs from that. And that's like the first LARPs I ever played were just all the LARPs from LARPs from the factory. Swing dance, the gateway drug. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I guess there's, but I mean, I was, I had been into tabletop role playing games for years and years and years. Right. So that was. There, I guess there's no like normal way to get into LARP. It's always some like weird story, right? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of personal in I hear a lot of personal invite stories too. Mm-hmm. Like I met somebody random at insert like hacker convention or like sci-fi literature convention or dinner party or something here. Uh-huh. And so and so said I must try it and then I did. <laughs> so uh, there's often like um a lot of people who are into LARP are into something else that is really weird and interesting. Like that's what I'm noticing is that nobody's like a, like a pure, like 100% LARPer. They've always got some other side. I was wondering which of your two degrees uh, involved writing a thesis on uh, pickling, pickles? That was my uh, journalism degree. I have this uh, partner, Lisa Biajadi, who's now a filmmaker. Um, she went on to make a really great film, documentary film about AIDS in the Deep South called Deep South beautiful documentary. Um, but yeah, she and I paired together. Uh, we were both really interested in food and we were going to, we thought we would write something. We would design a site on um, locavores um, and food sheds. But what happened was we went down to do some reporting at the farmer's market. We ended up talking to this guy who was telling us all about pickling and he invited us to his apartment to make sauerkraut. Cool. And so we did it and then we became obsessed with pickling because it's it's like alchemy, you know? It's like magical alchemy. I, I actually uh my husband and I like to make like to pickle together, of course. The couple that pickles together stays together. And um uh and we're in the process of making kimchi right now. Amazing. You know, something that, that comes across in your book over and over and over again, really, um, is that the games are really interesting, but the people are fascinating. Um, you know, are, would you say that you got into LARP or into LARP for the people? Um, yeah, I did get into LARP for the people, for the people, but also for the the format of the the format of the games is really interesting. Uh, it's weird though. Um, one of the things I found while I was reporting the book is that 
watching LARP is incredibly boring. <laughs> it's like, it's like, you know, once you've seen your first like two to three boffer fights, uh, or your first two to three like big conflicts in a game, um, it's it's just excruciatingly boring. It's like watching a people at a dinner party that you're and but you're not allowed to like eat any of the food. <laughs> so you know, um, uh, Finnish uh, LARP academic Marcus Montala, um, he's doctor of LARP. He talks about how LARP has this first person audience where um, you know LARP is transformative for the participants. So I think that's really compelling, but it's hard to render on the page because I can only get so much out of you about what your experience of XYZ LARP was. But that's why, you know, a part of, I'm, I'm not too surprised to hear that uh, one of the people running LARPs was also running, like, did you say a shamanic? Uh, it's like something with crystal balls and it's a sound journey and it's transformative. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah like it's, it. it's transformative. <laughs> yes. Well, and it's right? rituals, right? People yeah. are super into ritual or into something that is going to be, or they anticipate will be profound in some way. Yeah. So I think mm. like on a personal level, that's what I went into LARP to look for. But then there's just this incredibly interesting culture that has grown up around it. Um, and one of the things I really quite liked about um, going to a campaign LARP, and I, I went to this campaign LARP, uh, Boffer LARP, medieval fantasy, like the, you know, the the LARP, the archetypal kind of yeah. LARP that we think of when we think of campaign LARP. I went to one called Night Realms uh, in New Jersey. And one of the things I really liked about the campaign format is you see the same people week after week. And it brought me into contact with people of different backgrounds from my own that I would never have encountered in my ordinary life, or if I had encountered them, we wouldn't have been able to have a meaningful connection. So to me, that's also something that I really value about this format is that, um, is that you do have to, you do meet face to face and the experiences you have, even though in some sense they aren't real, they're happening to fictional people. The connection that's built between people is, uh, is very real and you get to know them. Um, you get to know them in a way where, it's on their turf and their terms and you get to see people sort of be at their best quite often. Mm-hmm. LARP is kind of a funny way to get to know someone. I mean, ostensibly you meet them and interact with them when they're being someone else, but I think people reveal a lot about themselves in that process. How, do, how does that happen? How do you get to know someone so well when they're, you know, playing a role? Well, I think it's hard to construct a, you can think of a role as being like a mask, mm. um, but it's, it's, you know, it's a facade that you're creating and you're projecting, but it takes a real lot of energy to make up a mask that's completely not you. Um, and so I think you can feel bits of people's personalities um, slipping in constantly. There's a technical term for this that comes from um, uh, Emily Care Boss, who's a great U.S. Uh, designer, and she coined the term bleed. Mm-hmm. Um, so bleed is what happens when a player and character emotions get mixed up. And uh, sometimes people talk about bleed in, which is when your emotional situation affects uh, what your character does. You know, if I, um, uh, if I have a really bad day and my pacifist character suddenly starts killing a bunch of orcs, right, that's bleed in. And bleed out is the emotions that you take away from the game. So 
you know, when your dad relentlessly beats you at Monopoly and you flip the table at the end of it, that's bleed out. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> and it, it's, it's true of any game. Any game has this aspect, but LARP has it, uh, I think, more than most just because of the way you construct characters. So I think in that way, you can see people uh, bringing pieces of themselves into a game. You know, I played uh, I played Portia, the priest of Chronicler in this campaign LARP, who the god of truth, right? I was basically, it took my out-of-game profession, I made it an in-game profession, which was tactical since I was reporting while I was there, um, but also kind of who I am, right? And I she had a pickle business as well because she needed some, I needed some way to make in-game money. So I brought my... Uh, my weird fermented vegetables with me. Um, but, you know, her sense of humor is similar to mine. And so there are these sort of fine points. And when you play a game with people as well, your emotions um, end up to, uh, quite up. And I'm, um, you know, people talk about the magic circle of a game, that, that a game sort of is, it is this ritualized contact. And there's something about that that can really open you to, uh, it's like, the primary matter of human connection somehow, um, you know, where you feel uh, open to other people because you've shared something that's been real, that's really intense. Um, in the book, I sort of slantingly compare it to uh, drugs. <laughs> the way drugs bring people together. <laughs> um, you know, but I think it it is an altered consciousness in that in that way, you know, it's the same thing when you have a party and, uh, you know, the party runs really late into the night and everybody is left except for those four people who are holding it down and having the, the, the deep, intense talks. You might not remember what specifically you talked about later, but there's this general emotion of feeling close to the people who were there and that you shared this experience and that kind of runs under, uh, under the surface when you see them again. And so LARP does that same thing, I think. Yeah, it's a sort of, it's a produced in intensity, right? Whether it's whether it's a, a combat LARP or whether it's um, something that's more based on like emotions and relationships. LARPs tend to be about intense things, right? They're not about like going grocery shopping, generally speaking. Right. So it's, it, yeah, it sounds like that is bad, by design. Yeah, it's a, it's a heightened reality. Um, and a lot of people also talk about it as being a social hack for community, Uh you know, because it, that's yeah. interesting. Tell me more about that. Um, so one of the things I find really compelling about a Nordic LARP design is that they're always thinking about social engineering of people uh, when they show up to an event. So, um, you know, let's say I have made a game about how uh, how hard it is to be an introvert in an extrovert's world. And this is a game for um one introverted character and five extroverted characters, right? When I go to cast this, I might tell the GM to make the extroverted player play the introvert in the game because I, out of game, I want to give the extrovert the experience of, of understand, of empathy with introverts. And I want to give the introverts the experience of empathy with being extroverts or like the workshop is a, is a much better example of this. So in Nordic LARPs, they have um, this set of pre-exercises that comes before the game. Um, I'm, I know you've experienced it, but uh, for any listeners, this is very yeah, very helpful for our listeners. Go on. <laughs> um, and there are sort of some set things that you usually do, like you let everybody introduce themselves by their names. 
Uh, maybe you do a, an ice breaking activity, like a little mini improv game or something like that. Um, doing like group chanting or group motion. I like to have everybody stand in a circle and jump up and down. Mm -hmm. This is a technique I um, nabbed from a workshop called uh, Reaching Super Reality, which run which ran at um, Nudepunkt in Sweden. I cannot remember the workshop runner's name right now, but he had grown up in Southern Africa because his parents were missionaries and the Maasai boys would all get together like their pastime thing was to jump together in a circle. And then one of them would go into the middle of the circle and jump in different ways. And um, his point was that doing these physical motions can kind of put you when they're in unison, they put you in a kind of heightened state. And I found that when I do it before games, it increases feelings of group trust and cohesion uh, before the game, because you see that you, you know, because it sensitizes you to noticing the people beside you and being in sync with them and, and, you know, adopting a pace that's comfortable for the group. So that's, yeah. So that's one of the ways you can kind of socially engineer the, uh, the experience. Maybe if you have a warm up, you end up with a better, uh, a better game experience than if you don't. Well, that sounds actually really similar to what a lot of uh, improv folks do as, as warmups and as exercises is do something that requires, whether it's jumping or, or whatever, um, do something that requires you to all pay attention to each other and try to do something in kind of a coordinated way. And that does seem to bind people together. You know, you mentioned it in, in the chron the chronicle LARP that you were in or yeah, yeah. 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 Night realms where I Night was realms. the chronicler. Yeah. Oh, right. Yes. So it, when you were in night realms, um, you know, it sounded like you were having a lot of experiences that were essentially bleed um, both out and in. Um, I, I wonder, you know, did you have a kind of like at the time when you were experiencing that, did you have a word for that? Was there any guidance on how to manage that? Like what, what was that experience like? Um, at that game, I would say there were informal channels. There wasn't formal guidance from the game organizers, but a lot of the stuff that the, uh, the Nords do right as a workshop or debrief, but as a formal part of the game, it's done kind of informally in night realms. So sometimes I was included and sometimes I wasn't, mm. you know, the, um, the people I was following the in-game kind of adopted Portia as like a member of their troop. So we would stay in the same part of the campground, for example. And they um, came in as a, came into the game as a group. And so they had been creating all of these backstories among their characters that I think really made their play experience richer. In a, in a Nordic LARP, you might do that in the workshop, or if you have pre-written characters, you know, that might be done in the character backgrounds. So as far as warm-up goes, I wouldn't have been as comfortable, except that there are sort of designated people who are supposed to be welcoming to newcomers. Um, one of them was really kind of my guide to LARP, this, um, this guy named Jeff Schaller, uh, who's always super, super welcoming to young people and uh, in-game and out-of-game and really helps them acclimate. And then after game, they have, uh, you know, in, in, in Nordic land, it would be a debrief where you would sit down and have a structured discussion with everybody at the LARP. Um, but at Night Realms, people go to the diner afterward to talk about what happened. And there's a lot of um, debriefing that happens on internet forums. Mm. It's not, it's, um, it's a more oriented toward telling war stories than it is to telling um, the emotional, kind of the emotional content of your play. Uh, and so I think, I, I think I would have liked to, I, I didn't really have the tools to understand what was happening. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say. Yeah, that's really interesting. And 
it's it sounds like um you know even if there wasn't like a language or jargon to talk about it and there wasn't really like a structure um it sounds like the needs of people with, are very very similar whether they're doing like buffer swords in the woods or you know something intense and political uh in finland it sounds like what people need is very similar and so there's different ways of responding to that or adapting to that yeah and i would say in campaign games you know often people talk about the buffer campaigns as being uh lighter games or more playful games mm. but in in another way they're they're very very intense because you stay with the same character for years potentially um and uh, somebody who's done great work on this is Sarah Bowman who uh comes she has a vampire larp background uh and she's written uh she's done a bunch of research on the phenomenon of bleed and how it affects communities and kind of what can be done to um help mitigate the effects of bleed i mean bleed happens in 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 any game and i think that that there is a word for it makes it easier to talk about and um mm-hmm. and the more you talk about it the more it becomes normalized you know bleed is what some people are hunting for it's not a bad thing it's not a good thing necessarily uh but it's a it's a phenomenon and it's so it's important to be able to to talk to your co-players about it yeah um you know honestly what what i found the most interesting in your book in leaving mundania about uh this ongoing larp that you were in in night realms um is at one point you mentioned that that going, you know, weekend after weekend and seeing the same people over and over again felt in some way like going to church as a kid with your mom. That I think that's such an interesting insight. I would love to hear more on that. Yeah, well, uh, it going to LARP really, uh, well, let me start with going to church. Uh, I grew up uh, Lutheran. My mom was a Sunday school teacher, still is, uh, for 25 or 30 years. And one of the things I most value about my church experience growing up is getting to see people at different stages of development. So getting to see people who are, you know, 12, as well as people who are 80, uh, getting to see people from backgrounds that are different from mine, different, uh, you know, educational class uh, or uh, racial backgrounds, and getting to encounter them in this way that feels genuine because you have a shared interest. And also getting to see people at many different stages during their development, right? So, you know, the 12-year-old LARPer uh, might be going through kind of a 12-year-old phase right now. But when you see them when they're 16, you know, it's it's quite different. And one of the pleasures of going to this game was seeing um, seeing some of the young people kind of grow up while I was there. One of the rites of passage is that you can't, you couldn't carry a buffer sword until you're 14, I think. Um, although you could come to the game with adult supervision earlier. So seeing people like preparing for their 14th birthday and getting a little lesson from somebody else and how to use a boffer. And, you know, it was a fun in-game moment. And I know it was really meaningful to them uh, out of game as well. So, uh, you know, so church does kind of the same thing as LARP. It's a ritualized way for people from different backgrounds to meet. I mean, it's different, obviously, in that uh, at church, you know, you're worshiping a deity and at a LARP, you're there to have fun and maybe find something out about yourself. Um, but the kind of the, the mix um, and the social fluidity is similar. Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, 
I, I love that bit about the, you know, you carry a sword when you're 14. I mean, that would have been a profound coming of age ritual for lots of people, right? Yeah. Wow. That's amazing yeah. to me. And and I wonder what, what kind of, I mean, you know, maybe one of the reasons that LARP emerged and became more popular is because church became a lot less popular over the past couple of decades. <laughs> it could be. Although uh, uh, in I know that in the Nordic countries, I know the um, one of the big uh, LARP orga- organizations in Denmark also runs LARPs for the national church there, um, which I, is just sort of a, a marriage that I love. That's beautiful. Oh, one more way that LARP is like belonging to church community is that people do nice things for each other all the time. So it's an out of game support network for people or an out of sight support network for people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when somebody loses their job and they need a couch to sleep on, the LARPers are like the first people to offer up their houses. And even within the scope of the game, um, you know, growing up in the church, uh, I would be, go and be a member of like the altar guild mm-hmm. where you would, uh, you know, change the altar liniments and uh, change the decorations and do the communion fixing. You know, at uh, Campaign LARP, there are the people who make sure to decorate certain tents and common areas and who enjoy that and the people who make feast for everybody and the people who do this, that, and the other little thing uh, for the group. So there's also sort of a a sense in which people are doing service for one another within the community that I think um, can be uh, very beautiful. Absolutely. And I think it's like, it's, it's wonderful for the community and and wonderful for each other, but I think it's also, it can be very rich for the individual to have something that it's something to do, like something that they know that is their responsibility and it's important to them. I think, especially for a young person. Yeah, it builds, um, it definitely builds leadership qualities, Mm. right? Uh, Another kind of cool social engineering element of this LARP is that uh, if you join the game when you're a kid, there's this problem, right? Which is that most people there are adults and you're a kid. So how are you going to be sort of, how how are they going to engineer the situation to suck you into play? And at this LARP I went to, they do it by um, mandating that all the kids have to play healers. Mm. because every party needs a healer to go out with and he- and healers can be useful to people of any level. The basic healing spell gets you from unconscious back to, you know, weak, but alive, for right. example. And so you also end up with these little kids who, you know, they show up to every event and they don't look very big, but they're like a level 20 healer or something <laughs> right. like this. So they get dragged on all of the secret high profile mods. Right. Um, and by the time they do open up their second combat character or whatever, they buy the combat list, they're actually pretty fearsome. So I thought that was quite interesting too. Uh, as a priest, I had to give a lot, bunch of speeches um, while I was there role playing, giving mass. And so that was also a kind of a humbling experience for me because I didn't know what I was doing. But everybody else in the group, of course, they want the in-game benefit of having listened to my mass. Oh, right. Because they'll get a plus one or whatever it is. Yeah. So to it's, it's a structural thing that um, made people sit and listen nicely to me. <laughs> um, and that made me feel really great about myself. And it made me much less nervous public speaking, I would say. Yeah, that's amazing. And in a way, it's kind of a low stakes atmosphere to practice those kinds of things, right? Because you're doing it in a community yeah. that, as, you, as you've said, is, is built to support you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I'd like to talk to you about some of the LARPs that you've done. 
this miracle, which is a LARP he wrote with Nick Fortuno, um, maybe can you can you just give our audience like a, a quick summary of what that's about? Sure. So in this miracle, you build a religion, <laughs> sort of. You uh, using group storytelling, you create several foundational myths uh, for this religion, and then in the second half, and then you create rituals uh, that go with the myths. And then in the second half of the game, you play pilgrims along a pilgrimage and um, they have to stop and do these rituals. You know, in the fiction of the game, it's like 200 years later or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So Nick and I had gotten interested in how religions develop and sort of this this telephone aspect to things and how that can uh, both sort of change them and help them accrue more meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, as they get reinterpreted, uh, as they pass from hand to hand to hand. Yeah, it's amazing. Honestly, it's it's a beautiful LARP. I had such a profound experience with it. And I, I've never encountered a game of any kind that understands how, how mythology develops, how rituals develop. Um, and I love that you point out that very like additive process, right? It's not like there's a story and then it gets messed up over time. It gets changed and people interpret it and they reinterpret it based on what's important to them. It's, it's totally brilliant. I have to ask though, how did making a LARP about religion seem like a good idea? <laughs> There's, it's, um, that's, it's a tough, it's a tough topic. Yeah. Well, I'm very interested in how religion is influencing our society now. And I know Nick is as well. And so we had wanted to find a way to talk about that but then you run into real life cultural appropriation problems, right? Of um, disrespecting a particular religion or religious belief, which of course is very much not our intent yeah. uh, with this game. And so we actually had had this idea to make a make like a weekend long LARP about um, about a commune following a religion. Uh, but of course, we wouldn't want to make it again. We wouldn't want to make it a real life religion. Yeah, we would really need it to be a fake religion. So then we the conversation turned to, well, how would you make how 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 would you make a religion? How yeah. do religions develop over time? Um, and I think partially it is so much in the in the forefront of our consciousness now. I mean, right now in 2015, right when there are all of these inflammatory. Uh, comments being thrown around by politicians. So mm-hmm. I think it is very important to be able to discuss the role that faith plays in life uh, and in politics. But um, but it is a but it is a sensitive subject. On the other hand, we were also kind of interested um, in. We submitted it to uh, this Danish festival called Festival, mm. which is a role playing. Uh, it's a role playing festival for g- shorter games, games that are maybe up to four hours long. And they have a long storied tradition and very mannered tradition of how the judging happens and how the ideas happen and how you present your game and all of that. But And they're very boundary pushing there, um, very, very boundary pushing. And so we were sort of asking the Danes, what, or I was asking some of the Danes, um, what boundaries hadn't been pushed because it can be fun to be a provocateur uh, as well. And this, this was definitely one of them. That's amazing. What a place to start. What's what's going to make people angry? Can I do something based on that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We tried to do good game design so people could like opt out and and Oh, of course. and all of that. It's still like I would say the design is still a little rocky 
based on kind of the reaction from uh, from the festival people, mm. uh, the people who played it at festival. But it's a little hard to get the mix right too because we're a, two Americans making a game for uh, Nordic people, basically. And um, and the way we play is so different. Yeah, yeah, definitely very different play cultures. Um, you know, in, in your book, you said of your first Jeep form game, this wasn't a vacation from reality. It was a journey into my own psyche. And I just read that. And I was like, oh, dang, this girl knows where it's at. This girl knows the good shit. <laughs> um, it, it's, it sounded like like your trip to to the Nords um, was was really profound and really changed what you thought LARP could be. It was. Um, uh, it was. It, it really was mind blowing. Uh, you know, um, those scenes are designed a lot for bleed mm. specifically, but they also have a way of presenting the mechanics of the game in which that I think is more accessible to the average player off the street. Right. If you want to sign up for Night Realms, you've got to read through like one thousand pages of rules and do math. To, to calculate different things and to optimize them. And some people find that really fun. Um, but I'm not, I'm not one of those people. I prefer playing for story. And so one of the things I really like about the Nordic design is that it's very, I, I found it to be very intuitive. You know, you show up, you act as if you don't have to um, be big and flashy about the way that you play. I mean, you, frankly, you don't in American culture either, but playing a, 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 a person from our reality versus playing a priest of the chronicler, right? One feels like one feels more unfamiliar and, and different than the other. Um, mm -hmm. And the techniques of the game are all designed to heighten the drama. So one thing that can be a bit difficult in campaign play is to try to ramp up your character's arc and know where to go with it. And a lot of people like the freedom and like the challenge and the slow build. For me, I really just like the drama and the emotions. So uh, so Nordic LARP kind of, or the Jeep form at least, uh, hacks, mm -hmm. hacks that format to just give you kind of the most awesome parts of campaign play that you would get in like a year, but it mm -hmm. condenses it into four hours. And you don't have to sleep in the woods. <laughs> that, that, that's that, that's what uh, the Swedish designer Anna Westerling is is always saying. She's like, and then I realized with Freeform that I could get like just the good parts of the weekend LARP experience, and I and and it could just be in a classroom. <laughs> Right. And, and for some people, sleeping in the woods is like half the fun of it, right? Like, yes, it's it's designed for different needs and different desires. Yes. Um, yes. There's something there's something in that initial reaction and in, uh, um, that, you know, that quote from the book about self-knowledge or self like exploration of the self. I mean, we've talked about LARP as a way to get to know other people and a way to connect to other people. But do you think that that journey works inward as well? Yeah, it definitely works inward, and I think most most uh, you know, longtime LARPers will definitely be able to tell you about something that they've learned from their characters, something they've learned about themselves. This was a theme that cropped up again and again as I was doing my interviews uh, for the book. So, you know, living with the you that is not you uh, when you're LARPing gives really helps you make the comparison really helps th sort of throw your everyday life into relief. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a useful exercise in, in self-reflection. Um, and again, the mechanics of a game can be aimed more sharply at creating that effect or less sharply. 
So with campaign play, I would say it's inevitable because you're playing the same character over a really long period of time. Uh, and you're suspending kind of your own everyday personality for long periods of time. Um, but a lot of the, the shorter freeform games are um, do that uh, structurally. You know, mm-hmm. you're not uh, Alex Roberts. Now you are a gay man um, at the height of the at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. And, uh, you know, two of the five people in this game are going to be dead. by the time the game is over and it's going to be really sad you know that and sort of that's a really extreme uh emotional situation to put yourself into and the way you react can tell you a lot about um about yourself yeah absolutely well that that's very pertinent to me because i have played in that larp the five-hour version of of (laughs) just a little loving and it was it was intense and it was profound and it did make me think about my relationship to queer history and like my relationship to grief and death and dying and my own mortality like absolutely i like that um that interest in in finding or creating a game that jumps right to the good stuff (laughs) It's, it's a very focused i think uh approach Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very focused approach, but it's also a very dramatic approach. And so you don't get the everydayness of the situation as well, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, and there's something to be said for that kind of um, mimesis, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, um, being, being bored is part of life. (laughs) <laughs> and, and and living living the you know the every day and and the sort of like getting up and having a shower and and picking up dinner um is all part of your life as much as the super intense dramatic traumas are right, right. and and i'm also hearing that you know maybe the the free form or the sort of more like one shot i guess you would say in tabletop larps don't generate the kind of community that you've been describing that some of the chronicle or sorry some of the um boffer larps do I, I think it very much depends because if you have kind of a culture of playing these games, then um, then you end up having intense experiences with other people in your broader community. Like I would say I'm part of a community of maybe like 50 people who live within a few hour drive, a few hours drive of me on the East Coast. And we see each other at different conventions and we're always playing these games together, but in different constellations. Because the games, a lot of the games only take, you know, three players or five players or eight players or 12 players would be really big. And so you get to experience, you know, I might get to experience Alex Roberts in 10 different personas over the course of, of a year or two. And so I would say it breeds a different kind of emotional uh, intimacy. Um, I'd say like among my uh, among my friends that I play Freeform with quite a bit, um, we're very emotionally open with each other and we're very uh, clear uh, <laughs> to the extent that we can. Right, right. And well, there's an honesty when you when when you're designing for that kind of directness, and when you're aiming for that, like jumping right into that rich vein of, of emotional experience, you have to be really clear. You have to be really honest. You have to be like, yes, no. Those things have to be said. Yeah, yeah. And it can be kind of intense. I find that with the freeform community, I'll have kind of like themed conventions where there's, you know, one person who's defining my experience at this dreamation or, you know, or whatever. Um, With the with the people I still know from my from playing that buffer campaign, it's much more the feeling of family. Ah, right. You know, right. like yep. it's familiar and comfortable. And of course, like we'll chat each other up. I don't necessarily know every little thing happening in their lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
but so in a lot of ways, it's like lower, lower, um, lower intensity and lower drama, mm-hmm. uh, which is nice as well. That is such an interesting analogy. I really enjoy that. <laughs> Um, we've, we've been talking a bit about um, intense LARPs, emotionally intense LARPs or, or psychologically intense LARPs. And uh, you and I share many favorite topics. And one of them mm-hmm. is safety. Um, <laughs> yes. what, what, are some, what are some safety mechanics you encounter in the freeform scene uh, or, or that you've used? Oh, so there are a bunch of safety mechanics. I would say the um, the biggest one is opt in, opt out. So mm. uh, to be transparent about what a game's material is, and that way um, you cannot play if it doesn't appeal to you. You know, this is a game about people dying of gay men dying of AIDS in the early 1980s. If you're not up for that, don't play this game. Yeah. Uh, right. So that's sort of the first <laughs> safety mechanism: is clear communication about what's in the game. Um, so that people cannot can remove themselves if it's not going to do the right things for them. Um, I think workshops and debriefs are actually really important parts of uh, game safety because they mm-hmm. build community and they build kind of herd herd competence uh, in the uh, in the way the games are are run and responded to. Mm. So the I think the you know and uh, trolls Ken Peterson just wrote something uh, a couple months ago about this on my blog for me. You know, if you have a really bad experience in game, um, in a game, uh, but we, and I, maybe I wasn't in the game, but I understand what it can be like. And if you feel you can come and talk to me about your experience, that's a safety win because you're going to get some support from the community yeah. uh, or you're going to be heard and understood. So I think building those bridges is really, really important. Um, then there are the more basic mechanics like cut and break. Um, so these are, are safe words that you can use if you see things going in a direction that, uh, you don't like, or that is grading against your boundaries. So break is a word for this level of intensity is good, but don't escalate it. Right. You might use it in a scene where like I'm shouting at you, uh, and you don't want mm-hmm. me to shout more. This this level right. is good, but no more, please. <laughs> so you can say break. Uh, or um, similarly, uh, cut is a word that where when, when somebody cuts, all play stops and that person is made comfortable. Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't force people to talk about why they cut because sometimes that can be quite personal. Mm-hmm. And there's the corollary rule, which is that you uh, you need to be able to, you need to, you're also responsible for the game as a whole. If I'm worried about you in a in a scene that's looking intense, I can call for a cut to ask, make sure that you're okay. And um, this might spoil your, your immersion. Maybe you're really enjoying like crying like that. <laughs> uh, but it, it, it's upsetting to me just to not know whether you're really okay. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the debrief is also part of this. It's a chance to you know, going back to what we were talking about before when um, we were talking about how do you get to know people when you're just interacting with them in a game? Mm. Uh, it can be quite confusing. Maybe I'm playing a total jerk in this game because that's the character I have been given and uh, like I'm gonna, I'm doing it as well as I can. Um, or maybe I'm trying to put be a jerk to uh, provide interesting play for other people or whatever. Um, if what we just leave the game afterward, then you don't know that I'm not just like that all the time. 
Right. Uh, <laughs> I, I've been at, I've been at debriefs that have a lot of apologizing. <laughs> People love to apologize during during debriefs. It's 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 very much a chance to reassure each other. Mm. And I think that a good debrief kind of gets people started on the path of decompressing what uh, what mm-hmm. their experience, decompressing from their experience and processing their experience. But I also think it shouldn't go on for um, for forever. I've talked to, there are quite a few LARPers who have felt kind of trapped in the debrief at the end of the game and they have debriefed enough or the debrief is kind of grating on their nerves and they'd like to leave. So I think a good debrief should be like, I mean, of course, the debrief depends on the game, depends on the game intensity and length and lots of other stuff. But I think it's good to have a structured part of the debrief and then tell people that, you know, go somewhere informal, go to the cafe for coffee, go have a beer at the bar and uh, and give people the option of sticking around and talking if they need to. Mm-hmm. Well, I was I was actually going to ask you what what do you think are the the essential components of a good debrief? Yeah, well, I have a few more ideas about a good debrief. It should be structured. Mm-hmm. Um, so the moderator should be able to make sure everybody has a chance to talk. Everybody has the opportunity to talk. Whether or not they choose to talk is up to them. Um, and the questions that are asked should be neutral. So not um, how amazing was this game I just ran for you, but <laughs> what are you feeling now? Yeah. Uh, and it's okay for people to have different experiences and, and to be able to talk about that. I mean, I would say those are sort of the two criteria. I also, I think that telling war stories can be an important part of unraveling from a game experience, but I personally often just find them... Um, dull. So I like to discourage war stories uh, during debriefs in hopes of getting people to talk more directly about their emotions. Mm -hmm. But again, uh, for many people, like that is the way they're processing the emotions is to tell the story. So I usually say something like, let's try not to tell a ton of war stories. We can do that after the debrief is over. But tell me, describe how you're feeling. Mm -hmm. Or you can get people to try to contextualize their experience by asking, you know, like, what are you going to take away from this experience? Uh, Something like that. Mm -hmm. Oh, I forgot to mention another kind of amazing safety technique that's being used now, um, which I think, I think it was, uh, I think John Stavropoulos and maybe James Stewart Mm -hmm. and Terry Romero and Kira Magran. Mm -hmm. Some constellation of those people, I think. Yeah, that that sounds like the, the most likely suspects. <laughs> Came up with it during uh, the Monster Hearts game, which is that if you're if you want to cut, you can raise your hands. Mm. Um, and this is kind of nice because break is then effectively when your hands sort of up to your shoulder, and cut is when your hands are all the way up. So as as a co player, I can see, I can visually see you getting uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, another technique is, of course, the off-game room as well. Um, so this would be like in a big, enormous LARP, like a weekend LARP. You might have space, you know, to define the boundaries of the game. And this room is the off-game room. Mm-hmm. And so people can go there if they need to decompress and be just not in-game. Yeah, yeah. And and there's, you know, the door is always open. The idea that if you need to take a break or if you need to peace out entirely, that, that needs to be an option, right? Which yeah. I think kind of plays into the sort of informed consent that, that you said very at the very beginning of of talking about safety. Yeah. People know what they're getting into and they have the option to to get out. Yeah. Yeah, you're exactly right about that. 
One thing about the door is open is that um, it's, I think it's a very good policy, but it also has to be designed for it to some extent. You know, if you're in a, if you're in an, in, in an intense four hour free form game with five roles where all five roles need to be played, it's, it, it's disruptive to the game to leave halfway through. And we can say that it's okay for you to leave and it should be okay for you to leave. But I've been in, uh, you know, I've been in that position before and it's awfully hard to walk out the door. Yeah. So, um, you know, sometimes as a moderator, you can compensate for that by asking people if they're okay to continue or checking in with them or giving them a way to have an easy Mm -hmm. out. Uh, But it's also part of that building that play culture where players are more important than the game. That's right. And this is something that that you've you've written about before is that the safety mechanics, super important, super helpful, but they don't mean a ton unless you have a a broader culture of safety around them. Yeah. And how how do we, as LARPers, build that culture? How do we make that the reality? I don't know. I think that's sort of the $5 million question. I think to talk about safety, to try out different safety techniques, And, uh, you know, the longer a game, the more clear my own boundaries become to me. Mm -hmm. I think it's much more difficult when you're new to gaming um, than it is when you've been around the block a few times. I'm much better at not playing games that I wouldn't enjoy now. (laughs) Because you know, right? You know from experience. You're like, oh, no, I've gone down this road "Mm." before. It's no good. (laughs) Yeah, or like I'm not in that mood today. Yeah, uh, kind of thing. So I, that's that's kind of one component. I mean, an, another thing I think is um, moving forward as we design more games to design them with safety, sort of safety concerns built into the mm. script of the game. Mm-hmm. You know, making a game where it is okay to walk out and and break the game, and, and it won't break the game when you do that. So yeah, and as players to be looking out for each other, mm. mm-hmm. you know, and really checking in on each other. Yeah, I, it's a kind of fine line too, though, because um, you know we can only be responsible for each other up to a point. Yes, yeah. I can't have ultimate responsibility for your emotional well-being. You have you have to take that responsibility for yourself mm-hmm. uh, as well. And I think sometimes the discussion of safety can get pushed in, in the direction where we feel like nobody should ever uh, feel bad or guilty or. Or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a path that will, I understand sort of where those concerns come from, but it also can be stifling to innovation. Mm. You know, playing games is risky. Every time yeah. uh, you play a game, it's a risk. You don't know uh, how it's going to turn out. It's an improvised experience and it might be different with this group of people in this mood or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of why people play. Yeah. is that it's not totally it's not totally safe or we can experience unsafe things. Yeah. And so I think I think there's a fine line between being responsible. Shoshana Kesek talks about responsible space as opposed to safer space mm. and I think that's a really great um I think that's a really great phraseology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um and you make a great point that um I mean the reason why you need safety mechanics and and safety and looking out for each other is because we want to play games that are tough or that are, are going to maybe push our buttons a little bit. Right. Yeah. But also we, we don't know which games will do that. Right. So because true. sometimes some of the toughest bleed experiences I've witnessed other people go through happen in games that are supposed to be all light and yep. fun mm-hmm. and joy. And so you just don't know. So you just, ha- you know, you wear your safety belt every time you get into a car, <laughs> kind of the same thing. 
kind of the same thing with gaming. That's a great analogy. I really dig that. We're just going to the <laughs> store. Well, you know, just put your just put your safety belt on anyway. Why not? Yeah, just because you never know. I really dig that. Yeah. Um, speaking of difficult subject matter, um, one of your games that I have not uh, yet played, unfortunately, um, is The Curse which is an autobiographical LARP. Um, it's, it's quite personal from what I understand. Yeah, it's about um, it's about my family's uh, history of hereditary breast cancer. And so being a person with a BRCA1 mutation, as I have, uh, I like to say I have the ultimate hipster cred because I did the Jolie <laughs> before Jolie did the Jolie. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh so I had kind of set this challenge for myself. I was writing a book um my most recent book is called Pandora's DNA and it's about hereditary breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of leaving Mundania I had I talk about games as being a medium for telling stories. Uh and I kind of wanted to test that for myself as I was writing Pandora's DNA. Mm-hmm. Um you know if games if games if LARP is really just a storytelling medium then shouldn't I be able to take the story I'm telling in book form mm-hmm. and tell it in game form instead um and so I so I went for it um it's a game about two sisters L and Rita and their partners um and they are at different points in the discovery process of uh their BRCA mutations a BRCA mutation is a well we all have BRCA genes, two of them, BRCA1 and BRCA2. We all have BRCA genes in our bodies. They are tumor suppressors, so they help prevent the formation of tumors. And in a very small subset of the population, um, there is an inherited error on these genes that's passed down from generation to generation that raises a woman's chance of developing breast or ovarian cancer. So in The Curse, I basically took my family history mm-hmm. and gave that as the backstory for the characters. I have a ton of cancer in my family, um, like a, a real, a real, real lot. Um, and then the two sisters, uh, the younger one has just tested positive and has to decide whether she's going to have a mastectomy or whether uh, she's going to do surveillance or whether she's going to do nothing. Mm-hmm. And the older one has already had a mastectomy and has to decide whether to have children now or freeze her eggs, or do IDF, IVF, or become a parent at all. Um, so it's sort of scenes between the two of them and their uh, and their partners. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to explore sort of that moment of um, being forced to make a really difficult decision with very imperfect knowledge. You know, having yeah. a, a BRCA mutation isn't a guarantee that you'll get breast cancer, but it's like an up to 87% chance that you'll get breast cancer. Mm-hmm. But 87% isn't 100. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and in some women it's less and in some women it's more for reasons that scientists are still Mm kind of uncovering. Um, So that to me is what the game's about, making a a difficult life decision in really uncertain circumstances and where the stakes are maybe really high. Yeah, maybe, depending on how you feel about it. That's that's so fascinating. And I, I think you're in a, a unique position to talk about autobiographical LARP. Um, because, you know, my question is, what, what, what was the appeal or maybe what was the benefit of um, processing something like that through LARP versus, say, writing about it or talking about it? And you literally did write a book about it. So maybe, <laughs> maybe you could compare. Yeah, well, I think uh, I have a, a 
being a lady living in the world, one of the things that um, the culture tends to do to you, mm-hmm. <laughs> generally speaking, I know generalizations aren't true, but uh, is you get kind of gaslighted into second guessing your decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so I think I had a lot of questions about whether I had made the right choice or the ra- or the rational choice. Right. Um, and I was uncertain about the role that emotion, my own emotions about my family history and my body were driving my fear of cancer. I have an insane fear of cancer because mm-hmm. it's killed so many of my relatives. Yeah. You know, so to what extent were those emotions affecting my decision making process? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we in the in the West we have this um, sort of wrongheaded idea that the perfect decision is one that's made in calm circumstances right without all that emotional interference yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah and uh and when i had written about this in other places on the uh on the internet and in in, in publications and so on um the internet commenters had given me a lot of shit for it yeah for deciding to have a, a preventive mastectomy mm-hmm. um calling me crazy stupid saying yeah. if i had brain can brain likelihood of getting brain cancer i'd remove my brain Interesting. Uh, that if i would just drink water with the basic ph then i would never get cancer <laughs> and my favorite one of course was that i shouldn't worry about getting cancer because what the medical uh, culture doesn't want you to know is that cancer is a fungus that can be killed with baking soda baking soda amazing mm-hmm. if only someone had yeah. told you beforehand yeah, if only someone had told me beforehand. So, um, so I was so interested in invest in processing that. You know, you take a blank slate. You take a person who's not you, mm-hmm. uh, who preferably doesn't know you. You give them kind of the same set of starting conditions mm. and the same basic medical information, and then literally they have to walk a mile in your shoes, yeah. uh, or you know, they have to stay in your shoes for a period of four hours. <laughs> <laughs> And make their own uh, and make their own choices. Mm-hmm. So I think I yeah. So that to me was the most was was what uh, the game format was really bringing to autobiography. Right. And so writing that was kind of a way for you to to distill this decision and and, and process that decision. But what is the, what is the experience of watching other people or hearing about other people play this game? Yeah, it's really weird. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's really weird. I actually just wrote a piece about this for the Journal of Analog Game Studies, the next mm. issue. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, well, so I wanted to remove my own bias from the situation. So it's sort of reassuring when the characters in the game make decisions that are different from my decisions. Um, one mm. of the, the weirdest the weirdest thing is hearing game reports where the players or the game master were talking about the characters as having made the obviously right choice, like the choice they were clearly supposed to make. And among wow. runs of the game, people, depending on what people brought to the game, their opinion of what the right choice to make was, of course, different. Um, so on the one hand, I, I feel like it's a win because um, I succeeded in not biasing, not letting my viewpoint bias the game design too much. On the other hand, I think the idea that there's a right or a wrong decision with a medical issue like this is just not um, d- not representative of reality because there's no, mm-hmm. you know, with when you when you reach this level of ambiguity, there's no correct or incorrect. There's just what's right for you in this particular moment based on the best available information mm-hmm. you have. 
And that's different for different people. Yeah. Do, this may sound harsh, but do you feel that that's a failure of game design that people are are still stuck in that like right wrong thing, or is it an unintended unintended kind of interesting phenomenon? I think it's a I think it's an unintended kind of interesting phenomenon because it's not universal across mm. the play experiences. Yeah, like I've had I don't know there have been maybe like eight or ten versions of it run, and maybe like two or three of them have felt there was a right choice. Mm. Uh, right, clear right choice, clear wrong choice. Right. I mean, and I think it's also a bit. I, I think it's a bit just how the human brain works. Like even in the um, the community of Braca survivors, everybody is always careful to say, mm. "Of course, you should make your own choice according to what's right for you." But basically, everybody thinks that the choice they made is the is the right choice. Well, of course, in though, some way, right? Like because that's, that's why you the made choice it. They made. <laughs> And and also to kind of to live with whatever you do choose, you have to at least tell yourself yeah. that, right? Uh, so I think it's I think it's I think it revealed something about uh, humanity that uh, <laughs> is maybe rather banal, which is that we like to put things into boxes, yeah, um, when we can. But it made me a bit paranoid. Like, are those people then judging me because I'm choosing differently than the characters in the game did? That's a good you know, question. Is, is that a judgment on me? Uh, you know, I know, I know it's not, uh, but uh, but does it? Come but I can't help but way. thinking that. Yeah, that sounds amazing. That sounds very interesting, and it's great that you've been able to follow up with that game and hear play reports from from things that you haven't been involved in because that is super interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's been played by um, medical students and people in different uh, countries. <laughs> Uh, amazing and so on so yeah it's always I mean it's fun with any with anything you create to see it travel and see you know see how people react to it yeah where it goes so you have a very exciting new project coming up uh this year um which is like an anthology of small games right yes it's called uh hashtag feminism um the hashtag is the literal hash sign, just to be clear. Uh, <laughs> you, you didn't think using the full word would be better? We didn't think <laughs> you like hashtag, hashtag feminism. Yeah, yes, I understand it's even pejorative uh, in some <laughs> circles. So <laughs> so certainly it is the simple hashtag and then feminism. And uh, it's a collection of nano games that I'm editing with Swedish designer Anna Westerling and a U.S. designer Misha uh, Buschjäger. And, um, and we have a great uh, layout designer, Shua Meng, uh, who's on the West Coast. And it is a collection of 33 nano games written by people from 10 countries. And so it's just short, little games, less than an hour. Most, most of them are for three to five people. There are a couple in there that can take more. Um, and we asked the authors to write us something about uh, an issue in contemporary feminism, something from their mm -hmm. life in their sphere that, that is important to them. What, what kinds of things have popped up so far just based on who you've worked with? Yeah, tons. We have a, there's a huge variety of games in the book. We've got really short, silly games. Um, there's a game about <clears throat> how funny the word vulva is. Um, it's sign me up. It's called dances with vulvas. <laughs> and basically you put on a, a and it's by, uh, Kaisa Gregor, who's Swedish, and uh, basically it's, it takes five minutes, and you name movie titles, but you just replace a word with vulva, 
word in the movie title with vulva. Thus, dances with vulvas. And you try to get up to 50 before the timer, uh, before the timer rings. That's a really fun, silly, short one. Um, I'm already running through so many in my head. I want to play this game. Yeah, V is for vulva. Uh, little vulvas. <laughs> um, Saturday night vulva. Saturday night vulva. <laughs> uh, and we've got kind of everything in between. Um, we've got games about more serious topics like reproductive rights, school shootings, um, domestic violence. We've also got games. We've got a great game by uh, Kira McGran about uh, selfies. Oh, uh, it's just a game where you get together and uh, you take atmospheric selfies according to this very clever set of rules. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got games about uh, sort of tropes of women in the movies. Um, we've got games about. Uh, we've got a game where you do each other's nails during the game. It's about uh, relationships between customers and technicians in a nail salon. Oh, is that glitzy nails? That's glitzy nails. I totally play tested that. It was incredible. Oh, you play tested glitzy nails? So choice. So choice. It's like, oh, it's the LARP about nail painting. Also racism though. (laughs) It's it's interesting. Like I, I had a really, really super interesting experience with it. Yeah, so yeah. hashtag feminism sounds super exciting. Um, that's coming out this year, or you're pitching it to Festival? Yeah, uh, it's going to go to Festival, and uh, right now we're we've got our Indiegogo going. I think it's going to be over in mid uh, January, but we're expecting to print the anthology and have it ready for shipping. Like here, we hope at the beginning of March. Nice, fingers crossed. It might it might be a little a little later. A crowdfunding campaign going late. That doesn't, I've never heard of such a thing. Yeah, yeah I know. It never right. We didn't promise people anything till April. Smart <laughs> so, choice. <laughs> so I think we're going to be okay. But our printer is going to be in Europe somewhere. Oh, right. Um, so it might take a little longer. We'll see how it goes. Um, well, Lizzie, it's been super, super rad talking to you. Um, uh, last question, honestly, for you is, uh, I suspect that many of our listeners have never LARPed. And maybe they're interested in it and maybe they're not sure where to go or how to start. Um, what, what would you recommend to such a person? Well, that's a big question. Um, I would recommend checking out, I would, basically, I would recommend checking out your local LARP convention. And uh, there are a lot of good resources on the internet. Um, I feel a bit bad uh, Norwegian games um, that are, uh, you know, pre- pre-written and most of them are decently easy to run, I would say. There are, you could start with like a nano game or micro game, small games. Um, that would be a place to look. Jason Morningstar has written a whole bunch of games that are really great for newcomers as well. Uh, he's the designer of the tabletop game Fiasco, but he's got a game called The Climb, which uh, runs um, without too much facilitation. So those are some starting places. I love that you're recommending Jason's games because he was our he was our uh, previous oh, guest. Was he? Yeah, <laughs> it's so great. Because um, yeah. I would actually recommend your Pocket Guide to American Freeform, which is a nice little oh. introduction to facilitating short, interesting games and LARPs for the factory as well. Because that's something that because honestly, my my recommendation to people who are not sure how to start LARPing is that just you have to start running your own. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You just have to do it two or three times and you're really nervous the first time and it's a little bit awkward, but uh, nothing will catch on fire. Probably. (laughs) Probably. Bold claims. 
Yes. You haven't played my candle kicking LARP. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there is a LARP uh, with a candle mechanic where you blow out the candle and then you have your little uh, scene. It's called uh, Screwing the Crew and it's by uh, Trina Trina Lise Lindahl and Ilan Nilsson. It's in the LARPs from the factory. I was just going to say, that's in LARPs from the factory. Well, there you go, everyone. Play the candle LARP. Make it happen. Or play Papers by Petter Carlson and Morgan Jarl, which is a surreal office LARP that is crazy fun. That one requires like a strong facilitator, though. But they give you a good script. You got to bring the energy. You got to bring the energy. It's pretty intense. It's good, though. It's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes Um, for first game, silly is better. I agree. Yeah. 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 Well, Lizzie, it's been great chatting with you. Um, we've we've mentioned your website, Leaving Mundania. Is there anywhere else where people can find you? You can find me at uh, lizziestark.com, which is sort of my author site. And I'm on Twitter at, at lizziestark. Awesome. Well, thanks again. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Again, huge thanks to Lizzie Stark for coming on the show. And thanks to you for listening. Next time, I'll be chatting with tabletop game designer Hannah Schaefer. It's going to be so much fun. If you have thoughts on today's episode and you want to get in touch, you can send me an email to backstorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Google+. That's Backstory Podcast. Or you can tweet at me, at BackstoryCast. I'd love to hear what you think of the show. Backstory is part of the OneShot Podcast Network. You can go to OneShotPodcast.com to find more great shows like OneShot, Campaign, Talking Tabletop, an ad modifier. That lovely music you're hearing is called Thinking of You by Ujiko. You can find more of their work at soundcloud.com slash Ujiko. Talk to you later, heroes.